I, I got really fascinated by um, the idea of cell surface receptors and how they were transmitting signals into cells, what was going on in the recognition process on the outside of the cell, and how was that sort of influencing what the cells do. And about that time bumped in, well, I was lucky enough to get some funding from the Royal Society to, to, start, to start out as a Royal Society University Research Fellow. So I wanted to work in that area. Was very fortunate in, in actually sitting next to Alan Williams at a AIDS-directed program meeting, I think. And Alan and I started talking. He said, you should come over and talk to, to Simon Davis and we'll... And we, we did a fantastic structure on, on CD2, and you can see Simon up there um, in the audience. And that led to me then, I remember talking to this, this guy, um, John Bell, after he'd given a talk, I walked up to him and said, would you like be interested in seeing a structure of CD2? <laughs> and he said, yeah, why not? <laughs> so um, he came over and, and looked at things, and about the same time I ended up sitting opposite Andrew at, at dinner, I think, and, and talking to Andrew, and, and he said, um, we're getting really interested now in, in maybe you know, trying to understand the structure of the, some of these MHC uh, class one molecules with, with peptides. Um, do you think you might be interested in that? And I thought, well, yeah, there probably are some rather interesting questions there. So we kept talking, and in due course, he came up to me and said, actually, I've got a, a new grad student starting, um, Kate Smith. Here she is. And Kate would be really interested in actually coming over and spending time in your lab. Maybe we could do it as a sort of joint thing and, and, and starting to look at, uh, at uh, some MHC class 1 structures with uh, specific peptides bound. In this case, the, the HLA-B alleles, because there was nothing done on those. The only structures up to then had been HLA-A2 and some of the mouse alleles, uh, some of the mouse MHC class 1 molecules. And actually, at the same time, I, I was, well, a year later, I recruited a student, uh, Scott Reed, who was also keen to work in this area. And so we sort of doubled up. He spent some time over in the IMM. Kate spent time with me. And uh, slowly but surely, we, we really got <coughs> things going. This was the mid-90s, 1995. And here, here's a, um, a cover of Immunity. Yeah, it was the first ever structure, I think, they ever had on the cover of Immunity, um, <coughs> where we've ac we, we actually painted on a color scheme of of green where the structure of the HLA-B35 was, um, was the absolutely absolute typical sort of path for the, the main chain, but red where it was really deviating. And you can see there was quite a strong deviation over here, um, which was actually influ influencing what was going on in the, in the P9 um, uh, site and the, uh, the, um, that end pocket, the C-terminal pocket. So. We started getting some really exciting data coming out, getting a lot of fun going. Um, Scott actually started looking explicitly at a whole series of B8 structures where they already, you already knew from the, um, the viral escape uh, mutations that you were getting antagonism generated by just single point mutations, changes in the the, the peptide epitope being presented. So we started looking at that and came out with some papers. And indeed have carried on that sort of whole theme, work gene um, 
Lee, for example, coming and, and working with, with um, Guillaume Stewart-Jones in 2004 would be one example. Now, while that, while that was going on, that, you know, it was clear there was, it was, it was tremendous fun. And I was spending a lot of time, I was going over and sitting in the, in the coffee room in the whim and, and having lots of cups of coffee and talking to everybody. But at that stage, I was based down in biochemistry, as was Dave Stewart. And actually, there came a point where, for all sorts of reasons, we were both starting to think, we're going to go, we're going to leave Oxford. There were a lot of other um, opportunities that we'd be presenting to us out there. It wasn't clear what our future would be in, in biochemistry. And Andrew and John got wind of this. And I still remember being um, uh, invited up to, to John's office in those days. It was, um, I guess it was level seven. And uh, so Dave and I went up to talk to John. And Andrew appeared a, a few minutes later, having rushed back from London on the train. He was quite sort of breathless. And they were telling us all about how they hoped that they could persuade us to recruit us up to um, the new Wellcome Trust Centre. And, um, and to start uh, structural biology up there. And Louise Johnson uh, was, was tremendously supportive of this idea, I must say. She's, she was the, the crystallographer, head of the Laboratory of Molecular Biophysics, which was uh, in South Parks Road, where I was before. Anyway, so all that was going on in the background. We, we, we were very excited. And as, as um, John has told you, as, as, um, while the building was, was being built and all the rest of it, uh, we still cracked on getting some structures done, and in 1997, really exciting collaboration with George Gao and um, Jose Tomo and others all came together and we got this, this lovely structure of the CD8 MHC Class 1. And then you've also heard in John's uh, talk just now, so I can zoom through it, all about the, the special... Um, properties of the uh, immunodominant uh, TCR directed against the HLA-A2 influenza matrix epitope. I'm glad I put the greater than one billion humans in there. I think John had three billion. They've been multiplying up since, I, uh, since we lasted the calculation. Well done, John. So this has been tremendous. And I mean, here, here's one of the, the key sort of interaction points. That is the, one of the arginine in that sequence that John was, was pointing out to you in the uh, CDR3-beta loop. So it's been, it's been fun. And along the way, we've not only looked at the classical MHC class ones, we've also looked at the non-classical. Uh, so Chris O'Callaghan came over, spent time in the lab. Um, pretty rare, I think, for, a, um, for somebody on the clinical side, clinically trained, came over and actually trained in protein crystallography as well, and ultimately went on and worked with Pam Bjorkman as a postdoc. And what Chris did uh, working in my lab was the structure of HLAE. And in fact, it was fun. I, I just said hi to, to, to Veronique briefly um, outside, and that brought to my mind the, uh, a paper. I've, I, my most highly cited journal of uh, Europe, European um, immunology uh, papers, really highly cited, and it's Andrew and me, her, just first, and, well, describing the fact that it's the, that the HLA E is, is presenting the um, the leader sequence uh, from um, uh, from the uh, MHC class one alleles. 
I've, there's all sorts of other stories, uh, all sorts of other collaborations that have really, as everybody's been saying, spread out from Andrew, uh, because he was always saying to me, Do you know, I think you should really talk to Gavin Screen. He's got some really interesting stuff going on, on the trail DR5 stuff. Or you should really go and, and you know, speak to Sarah Rowland-Jones or Jerry. So many people, such fun. So I, I'm sorry, I, haven't, I couldn't possibly include everything. But I did want to include CD1D, um, which is actually something that Enzo and I have, have cooked up, worked on the, on the CD1s over the years, had tremendous fun with. But, you know, looking back, I mean, Andrew, of course, that was the one that you, uh, you first pulled out with uh, one of the, the, the first antibodies, uh, monoclonal antibodies. So it was particularly satisfying to go and, and talk to Andrew about that structure. I'm going to get interested in these semaphorin things. Um, would you mind? I might need to come back one day and, and do some assays. And he said, of course, of course. They, they're involved in, in nerve cell guidance cues. Why on earth am I doing that? Because I think it's really interesting. Again, there's something really interesting influencing the way that these cells, guiding them, their, their motion through the body. And you can see it. It's first been demonstrated really clearly in, for nerve cells that uh, here, if you paint your, your protein onto these green tracks, uh, protein X, let's call it, then the nerve cells avoid it. So they're acting as repulsive cues. They're acting to steer, um, in this case, growth cones. But sure enough, this was all discovered through the 90s, these were starting to be discovered. And I thought, this is going to be really interesting. The whole field is, is now booming, frankly. So there are lots and lots of involvement in the neuronal side, the non-neuronal side as well, though, including, of course, this is my excuse for being able to talk about it here, the immune system. So first found in the grasshopper. Semaphorins, plexins, very little known at all. So I thought, this is going to be fun. Let's get in there and really sort out what's going on at the molecular level, rather than the genetic, than the organism level. Chris Love did the structure of uh, a semaphorin, showed it was a dimer. We then did subsequent structures. Bert and Ross did subsequent structures, always a dimer. We needed to do the structure of, a, of the receptor, the plexin. Did that, Bert did that. Again, a rather similar architecture. It's, it's always based around these, um, what are called beta propeller type structures. That's the action end of the molecule. But in this case, definitely a monomer. At least for the, the sort of top half of it, which was the bit that, that Bert had first made. You could do analytical ultracentrifugation, you can do um, your, uh, oh, MALS type studies, any sort of study you want, always a monomer. So what happens? You pull it together. You've got your dimerized semaphorin. Each sem so each side of the, the, the twofold um, symmetric semaphorin binds one copy of your plexin. It's a head-to-head -head interaction. So you can imagine semaphorin going up there, attached to the ceiling there, a plexin coming um, down this way, attached to the floor down here. Okay. So we're able to show, we do a whole series of, of, of complexes and can show for different classes of plexins, you always have the same architecture for the complex. Does this architecture matter? Yes, we can pull it apart. We can do all sorts of, of mutagenesis. We can do biophysical assays. And then we can go, most importantly, and ask the cell what it thinks. And these are what are called collapse assays. You can add a soluble semaphorin to a cell. And of course, it's acting as a repulsive cue on the actin cytoskeleton. The whole thing collapses. You, so that's 
important. The dimerization is important for the signal. We think, actually, if you look at the full length, you get some weak oligomerization. Sure enough, um, that's then led us to this proposal, which we published a couple of years ago in Nature, about the sort of clustering effects that you're going to get on the cell surface. And I'm just weaving back to tell you of one particular system that is, out of several of them that are very interesting in, in the immunology side of things, um, a system called the SEMA3As. Now, the thing about the semaphorins and the plexins is you've got more semaphorins than you've got plexins. Okay? So that means that some of the plexins double up uh, in terms of which semaphorins they're going to talk to. And they also have to deal with a huge number of, of different biological phenomena, different signaling. And it's been known for a while that one of the semaphorin families, secreted semaphorins, the semaphorin threes, actually can't just talk to a plexin and signal. They need another molecule, neuro neuropillin, which you may be uh, familiar with because of uh, its role in signaling by uh, in, in androgenesis. Anyway, it's, uh, so it's got sort of a number of, um, of identities. But it turns out we've just done a structure which really just literally in the last couple of days accepted in press. And so I, I just wanted to share it with you and say we now understand that the neuropillin is acting as a sort of gating molecule. It's needed to hold things together when, it's, when you want the plexin to talk to the semaphorin for plexin 3A, but when, uh, for semaphorin 3A, and you'll still get your nice dimer structure with your, but now with this sort of extra bit of glue holding it together. But if you don't have that glue, then it's the SEMA, SEMA 6 that's strong enough to be able to come in and signal. You've been very patient in listening to me going on about something that's been discovered in the nervous system. But uh, I'd just like to say that there is um, method in my madness because there's all sorts of interesting stuff now coming out in the immune system. Uh, for example, here in DC migration, this very same SEMA3A is acting uh, and is uh, indeed important in promoting their ability to get into the lymphatics. So I think ultimately I will be coming back and um, calling back on that conversation I had with Andrew all those years ago about one day maybe I'll want to come over and um, use some of the, talk to some of the guys over in, in, the, in, the, um, in the whim about uh, these uh, semaphorins and how we can assay their properties. And with that, I'll just uh, I'll wrap up and uh, just put some of my current collaborators up. Thank you very much. Thank you.